Fully caffeinated? Some people made the smart move of coming to the Saturday service instead. And then there were the hearty, we don't care how early it feels, nine o'clock crowd. Welcome. So glad that you're here. I have a few questions for you, but to be clear, I'd rather you not tell me what you think out loud, because I don't want you to influence somebody else's thinking. I want you to think about some serious questions for yourself and do what your history teacher in high school wanted you to do. Think carefully and write it down. Everybody have a blank piece of paper? All right. Today we're going to talk about some of the most important questions of life, maybe the most important question in everyday life. See, here in the United States, they call it the American dream. But every culture, every place that people have set up shop and learned to live as a people, or maybe as a nation, certainly as families. They may not call it the American dream, but every single person on earth is pursuing their best understanding of what it means to have the good life. That's what we call it. So much of our marketing, if you start looking at it through that lens, so much of our marketing on television, radio, and the internet, the product that you're being offered, the service that you're being offered, all has this implicit or explicit promise. If you buy this stuff or you take us on as your service provider, we will help you enjoy the good life. I mean, I've seen some of the most ecstatic people gathered around refrigerators on my television set during commercials. You know what I'm talking about? There's a stainless steel fridge, and everybody is just totally stoked because we have a stainless steel fridge. I've, we've had several fridges. I've never been that happy, not as happy as that cute kid who's dancing around the fridge. But that's the, that's the deal. That's the offer. That's the hook. We're all pursuing the good life. Even people who end up ruining their lives and being ultimately very self-destructive. Every choice on the way down, they're doing the best they can. They started on a self-destructive path because at that moment, at least the first step onto it, they thought that what they were going to do next was going to help, was going to feel good, was going to create an experience or a lifestyle or maybe acceptance or love or kinship with other people and doing the same kind of stuff, and that was going to make life good. So my first question for you, for you to write down, have you considered carefully enough, have you thought clearly enough about what you think the good life is that you could write it down? And that's what I'd like you to do. In just a few words, because I want to I get you back here in just a second, okay? This will feel like the SAT, number two pencil, right? Everybody quiet, don't look on your neighbor's work. But just best, your best understanding, what is the good life? Write it down. Okay, you got it? 
Let me ask you another question. Do you think that Jesus knew how to answer that question? If someone were to ask Jesus, Jesus, what is the good life? Do you think he would have had an answer? Not everybody thinks so. See, one of the things about being a follower of Jesus, because we live in a very secular and secularizing world that is constantly telling us that the only thing that's real, the only thing that matters and can be trusted are physical material things, whether it's your body or this pulpit or the microphone or the physical earth, everything that is made of matter, that's what matters. Everything else is up for grabs, may not be true, just a matter of preferences or values. And those forces, those secularizing forces that are insistently telling you that the visible, touchable world that can be seen and manipulated is the only thing that really exists and the only thing that can be trusted, even for people who are following Jesus, swimming in that culture, we're always tempted to relegate Jesus into a category of the wise old sage from ancient days who had some wise, loving things to say, but 2,000 years later, we would say, this is real life. I can't tell you how many times, even as a pastor, I've made the joke in leaving the church, well, now we're back to reality. But what is this? Are we not dealing in reality? Are we not dealing in facts and truth? If, if we're not, folks, what a terrible travesty this meeting is. Let's adjourn quickly. If this isn't real, if none of this actually matters, you're wasting your time and you could have had more sleep on this particular weekend. So when it comes time to considering how Jesus defines the good life, sometimes even for people who are following him or at least think they are, they're not sure that he knows what he's talking about. And from a pastor's point of view, I'll never quote anyone because of pastoral confidentiality countless times in this church and in every other church I've ever served in any meaningful way. The evidence that people don't trust Jesus really to know what he's talking about and be able to define what is good in life sounds like this. They'll say, now, Bruce, I know what the Bible says, and then they say a word made out of three letters that erases everything they just said. You know what that word is? But, and what follows is a reference to what they think is real life. I know what the Scripture says, but my wife, oh boy, Jesus doesn't know my wife, apparently. <laughs> my boss, my job, my kids, my finances, my health, my choices, my career, and they find that Jesus, they push him into this category of sort of a wise figure like the cartoonish old guy who sits up on top of a mountain and people climb up and he says cryptic things and then they climb back down to the real world. I want to offer you the suggestion that Jesus knows exactly what the good life is. The cornerstone of the Christian faith is not the death of Jesus. It's the resurrection of Jesus that followed the death of Jesus, and that makes all the difference in the world. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, it's all vain. We're still in our sins. We're found to be liars. We might as well party. That's the Gardner paraphrase, but that's what he said. He said, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
The resurrection of Jesus makes all the difference. What that means is it's not a historical fact that can be examined and known like the life of George Washington. If Jesus actually rose from the grave, it means this. He's alive today, right now. And Jesus isn't relegated to ancient history. He's actually your contemporary. He lives where you do. He knows what you know. Here's a thought. Jesus could do your job and would be quite good at it. There's nothing in the human experience that he would not enter and master. It wasn't for absolutely no reason that he was a carpenter until he began his ministry. If you would have lived where Jesus lived, you would have loved for him to be your carpenter. It would have been good work at a fair price. One way to think about a Christian that I would invite you to begin as soon as you stop listening to me and to take it especially into your workplace and your schools is to ask yourself this question. If Jesus had my job, if Jesus were a student at this high school, at this junior high school, what kind of worker, what kind of student would he be? That's what it means to follow Jesus. It's not just hear about Jesus on the weekend and live any way I want to for the next six days. It's understanding that Jesus is my contemporary. He's alive and he promised to go with me and he promised to lead me and no matter who I am and what I'm doing because he knows reality and he knows what life is because he created it, he not only has wisdom and knowledge, he also has authority to tell me what's good and how to walk through this real life that he has given me. So let's think a little bit. And let's listen to Jesus define the good life. Look with me in Luke chapter 6. We're following Jesus through the gospel of Luke. And in Luke chapter 6, he's come to the point, knowing that the political machinery and the religious machinery of his day has now set its mind on killing him. Luke 6, in the previous story that we looked at last week, Jesus goes up on a mountain all by himself and spends all night in prayer to God. When he walks down from that mountain, he walks among his disciples, and from them he chooses 12, and he calls them apostles. And that word means those who are going to be sent. In other words, Jesus is preparing his representatives he knows that his time on earth is quickly drawing to a close. He knows that though he will go with him after the resurrection, he will not be physically present to do the work of God and to share the truth and the love of God personally in the flesh for much longer. So he prepares the twelve. And then he walks down off the mountain and comes to a level place. And he starts defining the terms of what it means to be his disciple. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. It says, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Listen to Jesus to find the good life and think honestly about what you think about it. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That's a messianic title from the book of Daniel referring to Jesus. 
Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, on my account. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. What do you think? You think that's likely to get Jesus a TED Talk? And I like most of them, but the whole point of the TED Talk is to make your life better. Think they'd invite a guy to give the big TED Talk? If you don't know, those are 20-minute talks by leading intellectuals, experts, thought leaders. And they're invited to give the speech of their life, and in 15 or 20 minutes, they try to change people's lives through a short definition, through a short time of sharing what they know and believe. You think blessed are you who are poor, who are hungry, who are rejected, who are go through your life weeping? You think that gains some followers? Jesus really know what he's talking about? A couple more questions just to think about. Do you think Jesus meant that you have to become poor and you have to go hungry and you have to weep and you have to be rejected to gain access to heaven? You think that's what he was about? I know that's a real possibility in the thinking of people as they try to take Jesus seriously because I grew up in Mexico and many times in more than one city stood over brick or cobblestone streets and saw human blood trailing into a chapel because someone, usually carrying an offering or a prayer candle, had rolled up their pants or lifted up their skirts so that the knees were exposed and they hauled themselves deliberately scraping their flesh against the unyielding cobblestone to make themselves bleed. The understanding was if I do this often enough, if I hurt enough, God will accept me. That's one way of understanding what Jesus was talking about. Jesus said, blessed are the poor so I better make myself poor. Jesus said, blessed are the hungry so I better make sure that I go hungry. Blessed are those who weep, so I don't want to wait for life to make me cry. I'm going to go seek out some tears. Other people who have not understood it that way have romanticized or hyper-spiritualized what Jesus is saying and tried to make poverty and hunger kind of this ideal extra-spiritual condition. Since I grew up in Mexico, even from the time I was in high school, they would help put me in charge of groups or at least to help with them. And I'd sometimes take groups of suburban Americans like us into the, some of the worst, most difficult, poverty-crushed places, and someone would gaze out with a half-smile over all this wreckage and say something like this, oh, these people, they're happier than we are. And I would think to myself, just stay a month. Don't, don't, don't take a two-hour tour through the dump. Stay a month and find out how silly what you just said actually is. Because they're not happier than we are. They're desperate for clean water. They would love safe food supply. They would like to know that their children will not die in infancy. They would like to live 
in safety, knowing that no dread disease is going to sweep through the family and kill half of them. But that's one way of coping with what Jesus is saying, to say that the poor, the hungry, are especially close to God because because of their poverty or because of their hunger, something spiritually happens inside. I can tell you also from growing up in Mexico, the definition of a third world country is that there's oftentimes great wealth living right next to stark poverty. So I went to high school with kids who are what I call bodyguard rich. Kids who were so wealthy that they needed someone armed nearby all the time to prevent them from being kidnapped, and a quarter mile away are some of the poorest kids that you could ever meet. And I learned from having friends in both of those worlds that money may expose character, but it really doesn't make that much difference. There are poor people who are noble and good and the salt of the earth, and there are rich people who are as mean as snakes, but the reverse is also true. See, you can be dirt poor and greedy. A missionary I read after talked about a man in Mexico City who had stolen electricity and run an electric line down to his tar paper shack. He was the only one who had managed to do that. He was the only one in the trash dump where he lived who had electricity, and he got proud about it, so he stopped talking to his neighbors. See, there's nothing ennobling about poverty. Jesus is talking about real life. And what he's actually doing is turning the world upside down. He is looking at his disciples when he says this, and what he's doing them is, is what he's doing is telling them, I'm your new boss, and we will live because I understand what's true and good. We're going to live with new values. That's what it means to have a boss. In Jesus' world, none of what he said makes sense. It doesn't make much more sense than ours because in Jesus' world, because of the traditions of groups like the Pharisees, and it started much earlier than that, if you were poor, if you were hungry, if you were weeping, if you were being rejected, there could only be one explanation. You had done something evil and you did not have God's favor. Remember Job's friends in the famous book of Job? He lost everything in a day. His friends came and sat with him for a while and were great friends until they started talking. As soon as they started talking, what did they ask him? What'd you do? Man, your life's a smoking cinder, bro. What did you do to anger God this way? That's what Jesus is turning upside down. He's saying that appearances in this world are deceptive. He's saying that this world's values are upside down, that whatever it means to have God's favor, it's going to come through another path rather than self-righteousness, self-abnegation, romanticizing the difficulties of life, and trying to earn God's favor. And I know that because when I read the woes, if you'll look at the bottom half of that little reading we just did, when Jesus defines not only what is good and blessed, but what is woeful and sad. You see what I'm talking about? Look back with me at Luke chapter 6, verse 24. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their, pro their fathers did to the prophets. When Jesus reads that, don't miss this. He's quoting. That wasn't his original idea. 
He was looking back 700 years into prophecy, and he was reading to them the Hebrew Scriptures that they had heard all their lives in the synagogue. He was quoting specifically the book Isaiah, the same book that spoke of Jesus' virgin birth, the same book that explained his life, the book that explained in detail the nature of his crucifixion, the book that actually detailed the nature of his very burial. Jesus is dialing the clock back 700 years, and having referred to himself by another prophetic messianic title, he's saying, I'm telling you, I have come here from God to make what God said come true in your actual day-to-day life. Would you care to see it? Look back in your Bible. Please hold Luke and look back in your Bible to the book of Isaiah, chapter 65. Isaiah 65, verse 13. Here is God, the Father, the author of Scripture, defining what's good and who will be blessed. Isaiah 65, verse 13. Therefore says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. He's quoting. He's telling them that they've misread the Bible, that they've evaluated life and what the good life means purely in human terms, so that if life is going well, you must be pleasing to God, and if life is going poorly, you must be displeasing to God. Jesus is saying something radical and different. He's saying to his disciples, I'm the one who came to make everything God promised true. I'm going to be your Lord. You are my disciples, and I'm going to teach you new values. I'm going to show you that the world has turned God's reality upside down, and I'm going to teach you to live the right way up. If Jesus is actually alive and is our contemporary, let's try to bring it into our day. If Jesus were physically present again in Orange County in 2017, if he showed up tomorrow, do you think he would say that we have some things in our culture upside down? Not much has changed. Why? Because what makes the difference between the good life and the bad life is being a servant of God, is being a disciple of Jesus, is being His apprentice, of welcoming Him as your boss. That Christian, I'll never forget, I can't, I won't even repeat it. Well, I'll tell you this much, it happened so long ago. I had a man tell me that he was quite sure that God would approve of his new adulterous affair because God would certainly want him to be happy. And we opened Scripture and he said, yeah, I know what that means, but I know that God wants me to be happy. That specifically is saying to God, I don't want you as boss anymore. Reality has crowded in. You don't know my wife. You don't know what she's like. You don't know what these kids are doing to me. You you don't know what this dead-end job is and is doing and how it's killing me, I'm going to have a 50-year-old adventure. 
And I'm going to be happy because, God, I know that's what you want. Now, that seems absurd to you because you're not caught in that temptation. But listen, the nature of discipleship is letting Jesus define reality, and you will find out as you learn to stop living your way, I stop living my way, and I live his, he gets uncomfortable, and he cuts off corners, and he crowds into spaces where I thought I had it all figured out. In Isaiah, the Lord said, my servants will be the ones that are full and happy and filled with laughter. Those who have lived for themselves, who have served themselves, who have been kings and God unto themselves, all that happiness is going to be turned to loss and sorrow. Jesus is trying to get, in other words, his disciples to live for what actually matters. He's trying to get us to look past this present earth and its upside-down ways to discover this simple truth. When you're following Jesus, it means that the way up is found by going down. It's only Jesus who could say things like, hunger can be blessing, poverty can be good, Tears can be good. Suffering can be good because, look at verse 23, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great. Where? In heaven. See what Jesus is trying to rescue you from in very simple words is the foolishness of living only for this earth. He's trying to get you to welcome him as your, boss, as your new boss and to learn to live under his direction, to learn to live under his rule. That's why he calls it the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It's where God rules. It's where God calls the shots. My great concern day to day, one of the things I pray about the most and when I'm not thinking very clearly, worry about the most and take that pressure on myself where I should be leaving it with God, is that none of you, if you stay in this church for a little while, that none of you would have the temptation or that we wouldn't do, I specifically wouldn't do anything wrong so that you would welcome Jesus on the wrong terms. Because the easiest thing to do in America is to welcome Jesus into your life to help you create your version of the best life which you've already learned from the culture or you've already decided what's good. Newsflash. The very Son of God who created the world itself, who defined and created our reality and proved it by healing the sick, casting out demons, teaching the Word of God with authority, saying that predictive Scripture written 700 and 1,000 years before He was born was actually coming true in Him and then went on to prove it by doing things that only God can do and proved it magnificently and finally by actually predicting His own death and resurrection, that man gets to call the shots. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not Jesus as consultant or life coach or occasional helper that I get to live my life the way I want it, and when it's not working out, I call him in for an assist. No, he's looking at, look at the first verse. Jesus lifted up his eyes and looked at his what? His disciples, his learners, his apprentices. How many of you ever been in a discipleship in, a, in, an, in your work? Whatever you do, white collar, blue collar, how many of you have ever been apprenticed? Or if you were in a fancy kind of environment, mentored? Been through it? 
How's it work? The person who knows the job does all the work, you sit there and watch and listen, right? They don't trust you to do the work yet, and they just want you to watch. You'll lose their money, you'll do irreparable psychological harm to somebody, somebody might even die. You don't know anything, you sit there and watch the big people do the work. You do that for a little while, and then you get to do the work while they watch, right? And occasionally they say, stop, 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 shut up, he doesn't mean that, sir, I'm so sorry. He's just a trainee. And then there's another stage where you go off and do the work on your own and you come back and report to them. You debrief your experience. And then the final stage, they actually give you the keys and let you out on your own and maybe send a trainee with you to start the process all over again. You know what I'm talking about? That's what Jesus is doing with his disciples. You keep walking through the Gospel of Luke, you'll see him follow that exact process. But right now on the front side, he's telling them, these are the terms of the kingdom. This is what it means to be my disciple. I have some news for you. You've been living in a world that's upside down and you've gotten used to it and you think it's right way up, but it's not. And everything this world has told you that to live for this earth, to get as much laughter, as much money, and as much food as you can now and put it all here, it's all backwards. Just make sure that you suffer and you hunger and you thirst, and you suffer all these things on my account because you're following me, not because of your own bad ideas. A friend of mine likes to say this American cliche that everything happens for a reason. Have you heard that? He says, yeah, sometimes the reason is you act dumb and make stupid decisions. <laughs> Jesus is saying, you become my apprentice. You let me lead. I'll call the shots. I know the way. I know the path. I could do your job. Whatever situation of life you're in, if you're a single mother and you're consumed by pressure on every side, it's hard to imagine, but Jesus knows exactly what that would be like, and he would know how to behave in that exact situation. He created reality. Now he wants his disciples to trust him enough to go with him under his direction to encounter real life, real parenting, real friendships, real job, real spending, real savings, real debt, real unexpected tragedy, and to trust him all that he knows which way life is lived the right way. And in his case, as his disciples, it means seeing that the world is upside down and following him downward because as we follow him downward into humility, into self-sacrifice, into love, that's actually in some day in heaven going to show us that we were headed up the whole time. Jesus' early disciples knew this. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4 and listen to an eyewitness explain this to normal everyday Christians who have begun to follow Jesus and are getting a little shocked by how much it's costing them. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Peter was there this day in Luke. Now, years and years later, he's explaining to ordinary disciples of Jesus that they shouldn't be surprised by suffering, that they should keep trusting Jesus and doing things in his name and trusting him to reward them someday. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Listen to how much this sounds like the Beatitudes. 
what we just read in Luke. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you were insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But don't be dumb doing your own thing. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You make Jesus your boss, you take on an apprenticeship to Jesus, He will inevitably lead you through hard times and suffering for the good and the love of other people. And that is not the time to get scared or to give up or to think that He doesn't know what He's talking about. That is the time to trust Him. And Jesus says, when you're rejected, that's when you leap for joy because it's going terribly here on earth, but it is resulting in a great reward for you in heaven. This doesn't sound very practical to you. Let me say one more thing. In Christian circles, we have this phrase sometimes that someone is too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Have you heard that? I was actually in seminary with a few guys like that. And it wasn't that they were so heavenly minded, it's just that they were so lost in a world of ideas that they refused to engage with people God loves. They just wanted to live in a world of books and not deal with actual human beings who Jesus told them to love. What really happens is this. There's no one more heavenly minded than Jesus. Heaven is where he came from. Having created reality, now he's telling disciples, here's what it's going to be like if you take me as your boss. And not all of them would walk with him. In John chapter 6, I see an instance where Jesus gave another hard teaching, and it says, from that day, some, many of his disciples did no longer walk with him. They said, nope, reach my limit, bar's too high, I'm taken back over. I'm, I was under new management, apparently, I was checking it out, I was interested, but if he's going to be like that, if he's going to ask for that, I'm out. Jesus was more heavenly-minded than anyone. If you're heavenly-minded in the way that Jesus is, you'll be the greatest blessing to your family, to your company, to your friends, to this reality, to this world that anyone ever could be. C.S. Lewis understood it. C.S. Lewis was a professor at Oxford and a skeptic who became a Christian, who wrote a short little defense of the Christian faith called Mere Christianity, and he addressed that issue like this. Listen. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who fought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so, ineff so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. That's what Jesus is trying to rescue you from. He's trying to rescue you from a life that puts all of its emphasis and every one of its priorities on this earth and then has everything taken from you at the end. That's the final lesson I could, live, I could tell you from Mexico, living beside very rich and very poor. They all die the same way. The rich person in their end has more comfort and more cleanliness, but they all die. Jesus knows the truth. He knows that this life this apprenticeship will be gone all too quickly. 
that he has opened up the kingdom of heaven to you. Not by earning, not by sacrificing, not by dragging yourself across actual stones or doing some other spiritual practice that you think will earn God's favor. None of that. He paid for all of it on the cross. Now he's inviting people to be his apprentices, his learners, his disciples, his students, his imitators. To live not for earth, but for heaven. What he's trying to tell you simply is this. Everything you endure for Jesus here on earth will be rewarded in heaven. So don't live for now. Live for then. And you'll experience what Jesus promised. If you seek first the kingdom of God, all these earthly things that concern you will be added to you. Let's pray. Two questions. I've been asking you all kinds of questions, some of them pretty heavy. This is the most important of all. Have you accepted an apprenticeship to Jesus? Has there been a point in your life where you've humbled yourself and said, Jesus, I've been my own boss, but now I'm tired of it. I'm taking you as my new boss. I'm welcoming you as my not only my Savior and my helper, I'm welcoming you as Lord. You're going to run the show. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm giving it to you. I'm asking for your forgiveness. Has that time come? If not, my personal specific invitation to you right now is that you will claim Jesus as Lord. That you'll tell him in your own words. There's no magic to it. It's a move of trust. It's you stopping trusting in yourself and trusting him. That you will say to Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. Come be in charge of me. Save me. Reorder my life. Change my priorities around. If you haven't done that, my invitation to you is to do it now. And all I would ask, humanly speaking, is that you get that connection card from your bulletin and let us know that you've done that because we want to pray for you. We want to celebrate. We want to walk along with Jesus with you. And the last one is, is for Christians, for disciples. You know you're following Jesus. Hey, Jesus came to address the world and turn it right side up. Hey, Christian, is your world still a little cockeyed? Does it still slant a little bit back to the world's values? If Jesus has exposed something in your friendship, the way you're a friend, a parent, a student, the way you live your life, the way you spend and give your money? Could you talk to him right now and put him back in charge? Say, Lord, I, you saved me. You died for me. You gave yourself on the cross to save me and put yourself in charge, but I keep taking the wheel back. I keep wanting to drive. Would you tell him that you're sorry? Lord, only you can do this, but I pray that you would address every human heart that's here, beginning and including mine, so that some would come, as apparently they have already this weekend, some would come to be saved. And Lord, for those of us who are already following you, that we would keep you firmly in charge. I pray, God, for right now, for people who are really close to the line of faith, that you would move them across it so that they would put their full trust in you, so that they would be saved and know it and then follow you every day faithfully with all the ups and downs that they would follow you all the way to heaven. In Jesus' name I pray, and in your name, Lord, we give you this worship and this offering. Amen.